What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Pinnacle Performance Podcast. My name is Connor Harris, and today we have a special coronavirus Q&A edition of the podcast. Just kidding. It's just going to be a regular Q&A. So let's just hop right in. So James asks, why does asymmetry exist within the human body? Can we ever equally get into our left hip as much as our right hip? Well, that is a great question. So uh, just as an overview of why asymmetry exists, it's basically because our body is asymmetrically built. So we have more organs packed on the right side of our body. We have our liver, we have our colon, we have our pancreas, et cetera. So many more organs are packed on the right side of the body. So if I were to cut someone right down the middle, Uh, vertically, then I put them on a scale, their right side would weigh just a little bit more than their left, but that is significant. But also, our brain is asymmetrically wired. So we have the right side of the brain, which controls the left side of the body and vice versa. And on the left side of our brain, our left hemisphere has more uh, motor neurons that are, um, there's a greater density of cortical motor neurons. I can't say that word ever, but essentially what that means is that uh, we have more dexterity on the right side of our body. We have a better ability to sense things. We have a better ability to be a little bit more um, stable on that right side because because ultimately we have more neurons that are able to sense things better on the right side. So that's why so many people are right-handed. So many people are more right foot dominant than on the left side. And that doesn't mean that just because you're left-handed, you have the, uh, the asymmetrical flip where you would have more motor neurons on your right side of your brain. You still do on the left side of your brain. And that explains why even left-handed people tend to default into the right hip and like the sticking point of a squat because ultimately they still do want to favor that right hip because we all are made up of the same overall frame. So that brings me to the question of, can we ever get in our left hip as much as our right hip? And I don't think the answer is yes. I think it's ultimately always going to be something that we manage because we can spend all day trying to get our left adductor on, trying to uh, get more single leg stance muscles on the left side that are going to help pull us into the left side more when we're doing a bilateral squat or deadlift, for example. But ultimately, we are still wired to be asymmetrical, and there's nothing wrong with that. As bipedal creatures, it benefits us to be able to have one foot already in kind of a swing phase and one foot already in more of a loading phase because that allows us to start the process a little bit more easy. Uh, That's why with so many football wide receivers, you will see them start with their left foot ahead of their right foot because they are already in more of a propulsive phase on the left side of their body. So I think that we never really will be able to be symmetrical, but we never were designed to be in the first place. So it's always something that we can manage. Uh, There's nothing wrong with it whatsoever, but ultimately if it gets out of control and we can't manage it or we start to compensate on top of this pattern because of a lack of range of motion or stability uh, or variability, systemically, then yeah, I think that could potentially be a problem. But really, at the end of the day, I don't think we will ever do it, but that is so okay because we are not designed to do it in the first place. Okay, so Sarah asks, what? how do you coach the deadlift? I would be interested to hear your take because you often talk about people going into too much extension on the compound movements. Yeah, I talk a lot about extension, but I don't like to demonize extension because there's nothing wrong with extension it's just a problem if you can't get out of it. So the way I coach a deadlift is to get a neutral spine. And a neutral spine, uh, for those of you who don't know my take on this, I don't think a neutral spine is 
pushing out your chest and extending your low back in an attempt to, you know, get as much tightness in your body. I think you can get tightness. I think you can get a quote unquote neutral spine by retracting your rib cage. Because if you've ever seen um, a picture of the normal human spine, there is a degree of kyphosis, a degree of uh, flexion within your thoracic spine. Because we alternate between lordosis and kyphosis and lordosis then at the cervical spine. So we need to have a degree of thoracic flexion. It doesn't have to be nut. It doesn't have to be a lot, but it should be enough to actually make um, the spine go into more of a natural position. So what I do is uh, I will start from the ground up because we are pushing into the ground. So we need to have a good foot position first. I will say, okay, I want you to stand with your feet hip width apart. And then I want you to imagine there's a quarter underneath your heel. I want you to center your weight directly over that quarter on the center of your heel. Now, I want you to imagine that the rest of your foot is on a gas pedal. I want you to push down with the ball of your big toe and the ball of your little toe as if you're going 10 miles per hour. And usually what that will do is that's a very good visual and imaginative cue to help these people feel their arch come up, uh, which will provide them stability throughout the entire foot so that their weight is centered correctly and they're not going to be too much on their heels or too much on their toes. And that will also provide a good reference of the ground for that individual to then have forces go up and down the body and be evenly distributed in the muscles that we want them. So after that's in place, I will say, okay, now slightly bend your knees. And now I want you to tuck your tailbone just a little bit. You don't want to over tuck here because that will result in too much lumbar flexion. Tuck your tailbone just a little bit and then exhale as you reach your arms forward and retract your rib cage. When you do this, you should not lose any height in your axial skeleton. You should still be reaching, still be retracting, but that that does not mean you are slouching. It just means that you are reaching to the point where you feel that rib cage start to come back just a little bit. And as you exhale, you will feel those obliques turn on. Keep that and then inhale again on the way down to create that compression-ish type of uh, feeling we're going for with um, sort of a traditional idea of a brace. And then as you hinge back, I want you to maintain that good position in your spine. Try not to round over or excessively extend. It takes a little bit of practice to do this. And then press your tongue up against the roof of your mouth and then look up slightly and then push the ground away and be explosive. So the tongue up is a really important concept here because it activates a myofascial line called the deep front line. And what that line does is it essentially runs from your cranium all the way down to your feet. And if your tongue is in a good position, uh, because that's pretty much where it starts, pressing up against the hard palate, that is going to create stabilization down that myofascial chain. When you don't have that stabilization, what tends to happen is that uh, the prime movers of this chain, the prime movers that are big muscles, like your quads, like parts of your thigh, like parts of your core, are not going to be in a good position for stabilization because everything's connected. We can't just have, you know, 
our prime muscles working off our stabilizer muscles. The smaller ones aren't doing their job, especially in something like a, like a big compound lift, like a deadlift. So that tongue up is going to allow that stabilization to be sensed throughout the body. It's going to allow those smaller stabilizing muscles to do their job so that the prime movers can really do the meat and a heavy lifting, literally, of this um, exercise. So that goes for just about any exercise, really. I don't really even cue the tongue up on just the deadlift. I say that on just about everything. Because why would I not get that little extra boost of strength? Because there have been studies that show that the tongue up is extremely beneficial. Um, it's significantly, scientifically speaking, uh, beneficial for increasing strength and muscular force production. So that's how I go about the deadlift. And honestly, with something like a squat, I would do something very, very similarly. But I find this puts people in a really good position to feel that hamstring tension, to feel their obliques and abdominals working to stabilize their spine. And it prevents them from not going into too much extension where they would end up using too much low back extensors and quads because their weight comes too forward onto their toes, or they just lose the overall integrity of the position. Okay, now moving on, Ryan asks, what is the purpose of the hip shift that you talk about in so many unilateral exercises? That is a great question. So let me start by describing how I think about um, unilateral movements in general. I think about them as the gait cycle. So just as a very brief overview, I will do, uh, well, I will think about things this way. When you strike the ground with your heel, that begins the loading process of your weight onto that side of the ground inside of your body. So we then go from heel strike onto midfoot, where we will start to get more frontal plane action, where we have the, the glute med, where we have the adductors and the obliques really help pull us over the midfoot on that side of the body. After that, we are starting to kind of center our weight over that foot. And that is really like a single leg stance position. That is uh, mid stance phase of gait, which is primarily a frontal plane action with uh, internal rotator, internal rotators, adductors, and also a little bit of sagittal plane action through the hamstring as well. After that, we go into late stance, which is more uh, associated with toe off and swing. That's going to be more ER, external rotator muscles, more abductors, uh, and more like glute action going on there. So if we think about the gait cycle and we think about what a hip shift is, it's essentially just uh, placing the acetabulum, the hip socket, over the femur in a position of loading, which is this idea of a hip shift. So what I do with the hip shift is I cue mid-stance phase of gait. I cue single-leg stance because essentially what a hip shift is is just single-leg stance musculature working to stabilize the acetabulum over the femur in mid-stance phase of gait. It's really no different. So I want them to feel adductors. I want them to feel their anterior gluteus medius. I want them to feel hamstring and uh, also obliques. When I have those muscles working, which directly correlates to that stance of phase and gait, then I know that I'm getting the muscles which are going to help train them within that gait cycle. So why would I not go after that? Because it makes so much sense, especially like for an athlete or even someone who just walks a lot or really just any human being. We have to have a good loading phase. Then we can have a subsequent good propulsive phase. It's very hard to load. Uh, sorry, it's very hard to propel if we cannot first have a good loading phase. So I will have them feel those muscles through this hip shifting action. And then I will just have them keep that the entire time. Sense that glute med, sense that inner thigh, sense those obliques and hamstrings working 
uh, on that working side leg. And then if they can do that, then I know they probably have good frontal plane control uh, if they can do that consistently and repeatedly. And if I can do that, then I know that also like just for example, a split squat, I know if they can keep that, then they have really good positioning of that pelvis over a femur within something like a unilateral split squat. So really it's a good bang for your book exercise. And I really like it for just about any unilateral exercise, but also um, not to go on too much of a tangent here, but I think it's important to consider the opposite of that. So let's say on one side of the body, they would have really bad or really poor propulsion mechanics. Uh, so like the right side of the body is often in a state of constant loading uh, because we favor the right side. So that right side generally doesn't have very good propulsion mechanics. So we could do the opposite of a hip shift. We could completely open up that side of the pelvis. So instead of closing it off, we would open it up and turn the pelvis away from the femur. And that would actually give that individual a lot more glute max action. It would give them a lot more abductor activity. And it would be an entirely different sensation of just like um, sensory competency and sensory uh, awareness of what muscles are firing because they are working their pelvis off of their femur, so to speak. So they are working more of this external rotation and abduction musculature, which will then in turn help them understand and help them be able to become more competent within a propulsive phase of gait. So within that, I would want them feeling their big toe on the ground along with their heel and sensing their arch. Uh, whereas before with the hip shift, there would be more of a focus on the heel and midfoot. Here we have one on the big toe and also sort of midfoot. So uh, hopefully that starts to make a little bit of sense of how I think of these things in relation to gait because I really do think good training in the weight room is good gait training because if you're training athletes, every athlete I can think of besides maybe like rowers or a couple of other ones spend so much time on their feet and they have to be able to load and explode. So why would we not be able to train these muscles in a way that's meaningful and more specific to their sport? All right. So thank you, Ryan, for that question. Now, Kelsey asks, I read your Instagram story post about biotensegrity. I think that's how I still don't know how to say that word, <laughs> but I'm still confused about how that works. Can you explain it in more detail how we are made up of the same structure? Oh, I love this question. Okay, so let's let's break it down. So the nature takes the path of least resistance. Uh, the law of conservation of energy is kind of similar to this idea of how we are always trying to conserve energy. We are always trying to spend the least amount of effort for the most amount of results. That's really how nature works. So if we're nature, let's just imagine we're mother nature trying to create a very efficient structure that doesn't use many calories, doesn't use many, um, uh, whatever, many units of energy that this thing needs, then we probably want to have a straight line from point A to point B. So if we can do that, uh, a two-dimensional makeup of a straight line and a structure would be a triangle. That is the most efficient way to make a structure of, you know, a two-dimensional makeup of straight lines. But if you took that structure of a triangle and then put it in 3D, you would have something called a tetrahedron. And this, um, or sorry, a pyramid, a tetrahedron would be a four-dimensional makeup of that structure. Now, if you took a bunch of these pyramids and then you stack them together over and over and over again, it doesn't matter how you do it. It doesn't matter in what order you do it. Every single time, that structure is going to create a helix. 
And what is a helix? It's DNA. So if you were to create a lot of helixes, which if you read the book of Biotensegrity, um, what, what is this book? I have it right here. Biotensegrity, The Structural Basis of Life. Great book. This book says that if you took these helixes and you really analyzed on a very small microscopic level of muscle fibers, you would see that helixes make up the mouse and actin filaments, which act on one another in the crossbridge the crossbridge cycle. And then on top of that, those crossbridge cycles, which make up the functional unit of a sarcomere, then feed into the overall muscle itself. So these helixes are constantly present. It's that idea of as above, so below, which is in many different philosophies within, you know, the entire world. And I think it's there for a reason because everything that we're made up of is just a repetitive pattern of the thing below it, the structure below it. And I think this is very valuable because it makes so much sense how if we find something in nature that's successful, we just repeat it in varying levels of complexity until we have a more complex organism, uh, until we have, you know, a functioning animal, until we have a human being. So um, going off of the muscle idea, um, even things like blood vessels are just tubules, which are made up of these varying degrees of helixes. And they stretch and they contract. But the beautiful thing about it is that they just respond to tension. And these changes in tension are sensed within cells, which are actually made up of the same exact thing. Um, because everything is just a varying degree of tension. Fascia is made up of these tubules, which are just wrapped around the muscle. And then the muscle themselves act in a very much like uh, unwinding and winding fashion. We think of it of just being it being pulled together, but it's being pulled together in sort of this unwinding and winding um, fashion of contraction. So essentially there can be an argument made that there is no sagittal plane. There is no frontal plane. Everything is essentially just um, internal and external rotation. Every muscle is acting in that way. And the way that muscles are structured throughout a body is so that muscles can dissipate forces amongst themselves because if you were to think of the classic example this book gives is if you were to think of a fishing line and some human being that's you know six feet tall and they have a six foot long fishing pole and there's a very you know side not very large fish on the end of this pole it's maybe you know two or three pounds. Well, the amount of force that's actually going into this person's spinal erectors to keep them upright is just astronomically high. It's enough to where it would actually break this person's muscle. It would be too much force. The muscle would probably just tear. So how does that explain our classic idea of levers? Well, it does so in the sense that we have to dissipate muscular force and the forces that are external to our body amongst our entire body. Like we can't just have everything go to the spinal Directors. Because if that happened with holding this fishing pole, we would not be able to hold it up or we would just break our bodies down. So that explains kind of why with a deadlift, we use pretty much every muscle in our body. If we just use our hamstrings and quads and glutes, then we would actually snap our muscles because those muscles are not strong enough 
to actually carry that lever all the way through the range of motion. It doesn't add up according to what this book is proposing uh, in terms of classical ideas of how levers work in biomechanics. So I think it's, it's very fascinating and it makes a lot of sense and it explains a lot of things that we didn't really have an explanation for. Uh, and, and I think that it makes sense that we want to ultimately become uh, and form in nature structures that are able to dissipate forces in the most efficient way throughout the entire structure. So uh, if you're interested in learning more, I have a course in the Coaches Club, which is actually going to talk about this very idea and how really everything is just internal and external rotation. And ultimately, like we are just creatures that operate in one plane of motion, just like every other animal. I know that sounds crazy, uh, but it's just a theory in progress. It has not been scientifically proven, but at the same time, it does have carryover into things like fitness, exercise, strength, and conditioning, where we can actually see these things work out tangibly uh, in terms of results, in terms of exercises, in terms of helping people uh, feel better uh, and move better. I've seen this time and time again. I don't talk about it too much on Twitter because it's a little bit complicated, but I think that these ideas are very important to consider, and I think we should always be open-minded about these things. Uh, we can take it with a grain of salt, but at the end of the day, uh, if we're not always questioning things, if we're not always seeking out, you know, the next best thing, but still staying grounded in basic principles, then how are we going to progress as a field? Uh, so that's my little two cents on that. And that explains my uh, kind of idea and uh, what the concepts I'm working through with this idea of biotensegrity and really how I think this is going to make a profound impact on our field in the next 50 or 100 years. So thank you guys for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. Hopefully this got you through 20 minutes of the coronavirus. Um, and I hope that you guys have a great rest of your day. Stay healthy, uh, wash your hands, and uh, stay strong. See you guys later.